Welcome back to Curious Combinations, and everything's an original podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Archive 81, Season 1, Episodes 5 and 6. We open on the morning news of the 1994 day when Father Russo falls, or is pushed, onto the tracks in the subway. We don't yet know that's who it was, of course, and we also don't yet know why we're being shown these little opens before the credits of each episode. Honestly, between you and me, it kind of feels like padding. They don't really add anything except for flair to the story. And I think it would have been much more interesting to extract these from the episodes proper and maybe like release them instead as promotional material for the show, like little trailers. But sure, pad out your runtime, I guess. Knock yourselves out. After the credits, we find Melody sleeping in Beatrice's hospital room, and could someone please explain to me how the hell this is allowed? This looks like it's outside of visiting hours in the first place, and Melody is in no way, shape, or form related to Beatrice. It makes zero sense for her to be overnight in Beatrice's room, and yet here she is. She's sleeping in Beatrice's room, dreaming about Dan, and when she wakes from her Dan dream, she tries to pressure Beatrice, who is bandaged, blinded, and traumatized into telling her about Dan, and not only to tell her, to try, once again, to psychically connect to Dan. You know, the thing that made her try to tear her face off in the first place. Yeah, Melody wants her to do that shit again for no reason other than to maybe sate Melody's curiosity. This is going to be my constant refrain throughout this episode, folks, so either buckle in or just bounce if you don't agree with me, because here it is. Melody is the fucking worst. Honestly, these episodes blasted me right into I hope the cult gets her territory. Melody really sucks. Speaking of how much Melody sucks, next she's off to bang on Dr. Turner's office door. And when she finds out that he's taken a leave, she goes to bang on his front door. Of his house. It's a tense moment, especially because Turner thinks that Melody was the one who filed a complaint against him and might have cost him his career. And I've got to say that with this context in mind, I think he's being far too nice to her. Given how willing he was to hear her out here, though he does reveal himself as your typical medical misogynist later, assuming that a woman's problems are all just anxiety. But given what he does at the end of the next episode, one has to imagine that he's actually genuinely a sympathetic character trying to help Melody out to the best of his abilities. Or maybe everything he does is just another con from the cult? I guess we'll find out. In any case, Dan's dad reveals that Melody would have had good reason to report him. He absolutely violated HIPAA by posting about her on an internet forum dedicated to research into sensitive people called Baldung, who have a genetic predisposition to unusual psychic perception. In other words, Turner is an unethical lunatic who absolutely deserves to lose his job, and I can't really stand the guy. Nor can I really get on board with this show's treatment of psychic phenomena as not a pseudoscience, but a given. It's irksome. But whatever Turner did or did not do, the people behind the forum claimed that Melody was not the type of person they're looking for anyway, and now he thinks that Melody is just losing her mind. Before she can show him her evidence, his wife and kids come home and he sends her away, and I've gotta say, between her stalking of Jess throughout the entirety of the show and the way she lingeringly stares at baby Dan in this scene, Melody increasingly comes across as a child predator. It's so weird. She's also the single nosiest bitch I've ever encountered. She sees Jess in the elevator back at the Visser, and Jess is carrying a jar of something. Melody immediately launches into a game of 20 questions and refuses to take no for an answer, and bless Jess for holding firm here. I cannot emphasize enough how much Melody is truly the worst. She's dumb, she's nosy, she's entitled, and she lacks anything resembling social grace. I really can't stand her, and over the course of this episode and the next, she is trying very hard to win a spot on my list of most hated characters ever. Like, 
Dan's not great. I don't love Dan. No one's really great in this show, honestly. But Melody makes me want to reach through the screen and slap her. So when she gets home, she finds that Annabelle isn't there. Because it's 1994, there's no calling her cell or texting her to find out where she is, and I doubt Annabelle carries a pager. Instead, Melody calls her old apartment to see if she's there, and then she goes banging on Jess's door. So add Jess's mom to the list of people I want to bless right now for being another person to finally stop Melody just doing whatever she wants whenever she wants to. The delight I felt when Jess's mom shut the door right in Melody's face cannot be described. Back at her own apartment, Melody sits on the floor to watch the tape of what happened to Beatrice. Why? Who knows? That's certainly not something I would want to see again, but Melody is dumb, so who knows what the fuck she's thinking. Either way, she sees the monster moving in the static, and after scaring herself, she packs up her VHS copies of the tapes and sends them off to Dr. Turner. One presumes this is why he shows up to institutionalize her later, but that's something else that I guess we'll have to find out for sure in the future. Either way, Jess shows up at Melody's door to tell Melody where Annabelle went. According to her, Annabelle moved her things out of Melody's apartment on Cassandra's orders, and so Melody goes to Cassandra's place to look for her. They have a territorial little spat over Annabelle, and Melody tries to intimidate Cassandra into telling her which apartment Annabelle is going to be staying in from now on. Cassandra is clearly not intimidated by a person as inept and pathetic as Melody, but it doesn't matter. She clearly wants Melody to see that Annabelle has moved on. She sends Melody up to the sixth floor where Annabelle has set up a painting studio in an empty apartment. She's being undeniably obsessive, talking about how the building speaks to her and telling Melody that she can't see her paintings until her art show later that night. She makes Melody promise to attend it, and then she throws Melody out. And I've gotta say, I'm really enjoying watching door after door get slammed in Melody's face. It's about time people started standing up to this entitled asshole. But there's another, very concerning door on the sixth floor, and of course Melody, the nosiest neighbor ever, cannot resist investigating. She undoes all the locks on this door, and though what she finds inside it does mean that the right thing to do would be to save the people trapped inside, Melody has no idea while she's breaking into this place that there's anyone in there who needs her help. All she knows is that there is a door with a bunch of locks on its exterior, and so of course she has to know what that is all about. No knowledge can exist in the universe without Melody's investigation. Nothing may happen without her involvement or her approval. She must know what is behind all of your doors. She must know your life story. She must be allowed to break into any home, office, or other space if she so pleases. She is easily one of the most entitled characters I have ever seen, and the show is trying to pass her off as a sympathetic reasonable investigator. That she ain't. She sucks. As evidenced by how she acts when she's actually in the forbidden apartment. The place is complete squalor, and when she realizes that there are people in there, she doesn't even bother trying to talk to them. She doesn't treat them like people at all. She doesn't ask if they're okay, doesn't offer to get them help, doesn't ask about the bolted door, doesn't do anything to, you know, treat them as if they're actual human beings. Instead, she just stares at them, films them without their consent, and then abandons them when one of them actually dares to ask for her help. Like, what is the point of this so-called investigation if she's not going to use what she finds to help the victims? Or are addicts not human enough to deserve her help? Whatever she's thinking, though, it doesn't matter. Her time to intervene has ended. The maintenance guy finds her, and he pulls her out of the room. He claims that this illegal imprisonment situation happening here is actually a mercy and a kindness from Samuel. Supposedly, he's keeping these people safe because he had a sister who died from an overdose? Because you can't care about addicts unless you had an addict in your immediate family, and obviously the right thing to do is to lock them all in an empty apartment together so that they can sway and sing and shoot up. Yeah, great job, Samuel. You nailed it. And good job, Melody, for not calling the police or anything actually helpful. Way to go. What a brilliant move. You are going to take the world of investigative journalism by storm. I can tell. 
So finally, Melody appears to have had enough. She gets back to her apartment and begins packing to leave, and I'm sure she will regret it for the rest of her life that she does not. An apparition of Dan in her mirror scares her, but she whirls around to find not Dan, but the addict, Chris, who asked for her help. Chris claims that Samuel has gotten him and all of the other addicts addicted to something called stardust, which he says is a mold growing in the building. He wants to get out and he wants to get help, but though he can clearly leave the building at any point, because if he can use the fire escape to get to Melody's apartment, then he can use the fire escape to get the hell out of there entirely. For some reason, he doesn't want to. Not yet. He wants a, quote, golden ticket from Father Russo to a rehab facility, which is some of the stupidest bullshit I've ever heard. I'm more sympathetic to this than most of the rest of the show's bullshit, admittedly, as this can be successfully passed off as character nonsense instead of just bad plotting. It's entirely possible for someone not in their right mind to not want to get out of his awful circumstances until presented with the exact perfect opportunity as he imagines it. But given how frustrated and disappointed I am by everything else that's going on in the narrative, I can only be so understanding. So this rankles a bit, especially when it leads to Chris getting killed at the end of the episode. Now, there's something potentially interesting buried in Melody's conversation with Chris. Though Samuel reveals in the next episode that he was the one who lured her to the Visser, that Melody's mother never lived there and wasn't ever part of the cult, Chris claims that he does, in fact, remember someone who might have been Melody's mom. Not that he was especially believable. The woman reminds him of Melody because she had the same hair and the same eyes and the same smile, and Melody has literally never smiled in Chris's presence, so, um, yeah, he's not exactly terribly believable here. And honestly, it's really sad when you're less believable than Samuel, because that boy is one of the worst liars I've ever seen, in spite of how often he does it. Playing dumb, Sammy boy is good at, but outright lying? Oh god, he's awful. But anyway, Chris gets Melody's hopes up, and then he gets distracted by the call of the Visser, though they do come to a sort of deal. If Melody can get Chris his golden ticket from Father Russo, who is dead by this point, spoiler alert, then Chris will help her find Julia, who Samuel claims was never actually here, also spoiler alert. So at the church, Melody discovers that Father Russo fell in front of the subway with no witnesses, which is, of course, pretty hard to believe. She thinks that Samuel pushed him, and she's probably right, but what's not right is her next move. Because she truly cannot control herself, and she feels entitled to anything and everything in the entire universe, Melody breaks into Father Russo's office, or whatever priests call their little lairs, and she starts going through his things. She, of course, breaks into that little cabinet she'd asked him about previously, and she discovers that he's got a little shrine to the Visser mystery tucked away in there, complete with maps and occult books, one of which names Kalego for her, and another of which is stuffed full of evidence about Sam's criminal history and identity theft, plus info about the Baldwin cult, which used a symbol that she recognizes from her mother's ring, which casts a shadow of suspicion over whether Samuel's claims that Melody's mom was never at the Visser and isn't actually involved in the conspiracy. But speak of the devil, here is the dork in question. Funny how it's like spunky for Melody to come into Russo's place to steal his shit, but it's villainous when Samuel does it. They're both a couple of entitled jackasses, though at least Samuel manages to be mildly interesting while he's up to shit. Melody's just kind of a mess. So when Melody's pager goes off, she realizes that she's late for Animal's art show, so she heads out. 
She finally gets to see Animal's paintings here, and they're very good. The entity lurking in the black paint apparently is an unknown but rather pretty European woman, but success in budding fame has not helped Annabelle get a better grasp on reality. She is fully drawn into the conspiracy at this point, all in on the idea of something magical happening at the Visser and to her specifically, and when the art show actually sells some of her paintings, she loses it. She loses it to the point of actually getting arrested and hospitalized, as a matter of fact, for breaking the curator's jaw and putting out a security guard's eye. Next, after a brief appearance from Tamara, Jess shows up in the company of Cassandra. Suddenly, Melody cares about what Jess's mom thinks of how Jess spends her time. Suddenly, Melody doesn't think Jess should be able to spend her time how she pleases. And like, Cassandra is right here. Who the hell is Melody to go around judging everyone and dictating how they should be spending their time? Yes, it ain't exactly great that Jess and Annabelle are being pulled into a mysterious, presumably dangerous cult. But it's not like Melody is primarily concerned for their safety. Above all else, she wants them to listen to her. She wants to be able to just give orders and be obeyed, not to have the opportunity to convince them that she's right. She has no respect for their right to make decisions for themselves, or in Jess's case, for Jess's actual mother's right to make decisions for her. It's not like this is new. This was established before with the whole taking Jess to a therapist thing. Melody doesn't respect other people period. She thinks she's always right, and more than that, she both thinks she should be obeyed and thinks she's entitled to do whatever she wants when she's not obeyed or catered to. Melody is just a nightmare. I genuinely think I would rather have a cult move into my building than a Melody. Christ. But back to the plot. After Annabelle shops her, Melody leaves the art show to confront Samuel outside the visor. She asks if he's the one who bought one of Annabelle's paintings, and he claims he has no idea what she's talking about. Which... Could be true, given where the paintings all end up after Annabelle's hospitalization. They don't go to Samuel, but to Cassandra, and I'm still unclear on the power structure within this cult. Namely, is Cassandra in charge, or is Samuel? I don't really know whether Cassandra having the paintings means Samuel did or did not try to buy them. Honestly, though, I don't really care. What's most interesting in this scene is the apparent gaslighting that's happening here, except that you can only loosely define what's happening here as gaslighting. Samuel isn't really doing any work to try to make Melody look delusional. Melody only looks crazy because Melody herself is unable to keep herself from ranting about shit that will of course make her sound unhinged to outsiders. It's just another example of how utterly stupid she is. She's just out there in the street, screaming about shit that sounds fully impossible, no matter whether it's true or not, and in the next episode, she just launches into more delusional-sounding ranting when the cops come to talk to her, instead of, you know, actually calling them to report all of the various shenanigans while the shenanigans are actually afoot. If there's any kind of, like, award that goes to egregiously bad fictional investigators, Melody deserves to win it. She's gotta be the worst I've ever seen. If I've ever had the misfortune of witnessing worse than this, then I have thankfully blocked it from my memory. Anyway, Melody is interrupted from her ranting and raving by an unexpected arrival. That being Chris, or more accurately, Chris's corpse. Because he has just fallen to his death from the sixth floor of the Visser, and Melody's reaction is hilariously overdramatic when one remembers her reaction to Beatrice ripping her own face off. Like, fuck your face, that bitch just wanted her questions answered. But now, it's all hysterical screaming. Sure, I guess. So before the episode is completely over, though, we cut to Dan. On Melody's tapes, Samuel walks into frame to stare at Chris's body, and who should be standing beside him but the man Dan knows as Virgil. And I will point out here that Samuel apparently also used the name Virgil in the past, masquerading as Virgil Samuelson at some point prior to meeting Melody. So maybe Virgil is less of a name to these people and more of like a title that gets passed around. Surely Dan's Virgil showing up here confirms that he's involved in the cult, right? 
And here I was hoping that he would turn out to be a good guy. That his name and Dan's would actually thematically mean something. Oh well. Dan starts yelling at the security cameras, which prompts Virgil to show up and try to explain himself. He claims that Samuel was his brother and that Melody murdered him. It is the least believable story I think I've ever heard. And I have no idea why everyone in this show is so bad at lying. Like, listen, I need Dan to think this through. Virgil is claiming right now that his real motivation is that he thinks Melody murdered his brother, and he wants to create a false emotional bond with Dan by claiming that, hey, maybe Melody murdered Dan's family too. But if Dan thought about this for even two seconds, he'd be able to see how that makes no goddamn sense. Virgil claims to know all about how Melody lost her mind and killed Samuel, along with a host of other people at the Visser. Except that Dan is only now recovering the tapes that chronicle Melody's time at the Visser. There is no information about her elsewhere in the world, to the point that some other woman straight up assumed her identity, supposedly. Virgil has clearly seen these tapes before. Dan is clearly not restoring these tapes for anyone's viewing experience but his own. So why does he specifically need to see the tapes? I don't know, but I can tell you, and so should Dan be able to tell you, that Davenport is obviously fucking lying here. Everything out of his goddamn mouth has been a lie this entire time. So why in the entire world does Dan appear to buy this shit? Like, really, his best argument is, she wouldn't do that, not, your story doesn't remotely add up. It's just a mess. And the mess continues in the next episode. This one opens with the intro to the circle, all footage of which was supposedly lost and or destroyed. It's very reminiscent of the Twilight Zone or perhaps Alfred Hitchcock presents. Either way, I continue to wonder about the point of these little prologues to each episode. Is there some point to them at all? Are we going to find out that they're also something Dan is watching, or are they just extraneous minutes of my life being sapped away by this nonsense show? I repeat, these should have been teasers for the show, not openings to episodes, not unless they end up actually being integral to the plot of the show itself. But while Dan doesn't appear to actually be watching The Circle as the episode opens, he is watching something. We see him repair the VHS mixtape his father made for him, the one that he broke when he was a heartbroken child in complex mourning for his dad. I like the emotional implications of this scene, but I question its placement at this point in the narrative. The end of this episode implies that perhaps Dr. Turner was not such a bad person after all, that his forced institutionalization of Melody was actually to save her from the cult, not to further its goals. But that slight whiff of confirmation that his father was a good dude after all comes after Dan has this symbolic emotional reconciliation with his dad, and it's just strange structuring. Maybe I'll change my mind after seeing the next episode, but right now it seems as if this would have been far better after Dan has reason to believe that perhaps his dad did right by Melody. For now, though, the narrative moves on from Dan's relationship with his dad to his relationship with Mark. He's surprised to find that Mark has driven out to the compound to at least visit and at most rescue Dan. But Dan isn't interested. He turns Mark away, only pausing to hear what Mark has to say about T. Bellows. He indeed was Dan's predecessor at the compound, and after losing his sense of reality while trying to do his job at the compound, he ended up getting killed pretty soon after leaving. That's an implicit threat especially when taken in conjunction with Virgil's unfinished threats about what will happen if Dan doesn't try to complete the project. One presumes that if Dan does not manage to restore all of the footage before he leaves, he too will find himself gone in the way of Chris Lee and Thomas Bellows. But as Dan sends Mark away, I think it's important to note that his primary reason for doing so is the ever-present threat of the cameras. Mark isn't supposed to be there, and so Dan isn't going to let him in. Mark asks why he hasn't done something to the cameras yet, but Dan brushes it off and dismisses his friend, then goes inside and destroys all of the cameras anyway. It's just strange decisions, very strange decisions, all the way down, both on the part of the characters 
and the people writing them. But I guess we're on to the next tape. Dan cleans it to the best of his ability, but struggles to get it into the VCR, though it does go in when he applies some force. As the tape begins to play, we find Melody asleep in an unfamiliar apartment being filmed by someone. She wakes after the camera pulls back from her and, not knowing where she is, hastily gathers up her things. She finds the footage we just saw of herself sleeping, but there's no sign of who was filming, and I've both no ideas about and very little interest in the truth. It turns out that this is Samuel's apartment, of course, but before we can deal with that, we've got to deal with the cops. Like I said earlier, Melody unloads a bunch of her delusional sounding ranting on them and gets a cliche moment of here's my evidence, no wait, the person I'm accusing must have stolen it. It's pathetic, and if Melody is going to insist upon being so annoying, I at least need her to try to be smarter. But no, she's so ridiculous that the police accuse her of being on drugs, and I'm a bit ashamed of the schadenfreude I felt here. I don't mean to accidentally imply that anyone ever deserves to be gaslit, but if I had to pick a person to be gaslit, I'm fine with that person being Melody. In case I haven't made it clear by now, I really can't stand her. So now she finds out that Annabelle is in the hospital, and it's once again the most entitled shit that I have ever seen. She talks to Annabelle's doctor and brings up the idea of Annabelle having been poisoned by the mold that permeates the building. The very same mold that probably makes up the paint that Cassandra gave her. She asks if testing can be done on the mold if she brings in a sample, which is perhaps the closest she's been to intelligent in a long while. Except that honestly, trying to get a sample of the mold herself is just silly and stupid. Call a health inspector or the CDC or something if you think your building is full of toxic mold. She's just so ridiculous. It's completely killing me. Speaking of which, here comes the entitled part. It's Melody's worst moment yet, honestly. The doctor tells her that Annabelle broke a woman's jaw and stabbed a man in the eye, and Melody's response to this is to demand that Annabelle be released from handcuffs. Are you high? No. Assuming that Annabelle is acting this way because she was poisoned by toxic mold, we have no reason to believe that the effects are not still working on her brain. It is probably still in her system. We don't know what the hell it is, and there is no chance in hell that someone as dangerous as Annabelle should be allowed to present a threat to everyone else in the hospital just because Melody fucking Pendris thinks it's mean to place other people's safety above Annabelle's comfort. Melody obviously thinks Annabelle's actions should have no consequences because she's friends with her royal majesty, Empress Melody. I just hate her so much. So off she goes, banging on Cassandra's door, and the second Cassandra opens up, Melody pushes past her to start going through her shit and screaming about how she wants the paint. Why Cassandra doesn't just call the cops and have her thrown out, I don't know, especially when Melody physically assaults her. Thankfully, Jess breaks that up, but it's just, it's just unbelievable. It's not like Melody doesn't have a choice here. It's not like this is an abusive situation that she's found herself trapped in. She's not a victim here. She could have chosen to do things differently at any point, to be reasonable, to act intelligently, to involve outside authority. But no, she's just consistently decided to instead try bullying everyone around her into giving her what she wants, and I have no sympathy for what's happening here. I don't care that she actually is up against a probably murderous cult. She doesn't have to be involved in this, and she certainly doesn't have to be involved like this. She is acting like a complete moron, and there is no reason for her to be trying to do all of this herself. She's not the center of the goddamn universe. She's not uniquely qualified to rescue Annabelle or Jess or anyone else. She's so far in over her head, and wholly unable or unwilling to see or admit it, and I just have no sympathy for her at all. So when her behavior scares Jess, I'm honestly pretty pleased to see Jess turn on her. I'm not pleased that Jess is getting so close to Cassandra, sure, but at least she's standing up to Melody. She doesn't listen to Melody's ranting about Jess being poisoned or Melody's demands to know all of Jess's business. But she does, unfortunately, tell Melody where to go to find more of the mold. 
Then again, that shows she's also willing to stand up to Cassandra, so maybe I am happy about that after all. Stand up to all of these assholes trying to manipulate you. Good job. But now we find Melody in the basement, where Jess said she could find the mold. And she finds enough to kill a thousand elephants. It's kind of ridiculous. Melody knows that this mold is toxic, and yet she goes into a nearly enclosed room that is covered almost down to the inch with it. And then she touches that shit with her bare hands, and I just cannot handle how stupid this woman is. Where is your self-preservation? It's like she is begging the cult to kill her at this point, and holy hell am I begging the cult to kill her by now. Anyway... Melody whips around to find Samuel once again standing behind her, and when isn't he, honestly? But then the tape cuts out. Dan ejects it from the VCR to find that it's covered with sparkly mold, and, um, I've never heard of mold that sparkles, but okay. Worse, the innards of the machine itself are completely coated with the shit. When he calls Virgil to complain, Virgil's just like, guess you should have taken better care of it then, and I've gotta admit, I laughed. So Dan goes to the other machine that will let him hopefully finish his work. He finds Ratty in the mess of tech, merrily chewing away on some cords, and I can tell you from experience just how quickly a rat can tear through your wires if you're not paying attention. But confronting Ratty leads to a discovery. It's an old digital camera, circa the mid to late 2000s, and of course it belonged to Thomas Bellows. Dan sits down to watch what's on its memory card, and he finds Bellows' pre-YouTube vlog. He's going through old VHS tapes and writing down all of the contents of the soap operas recorded on them, and the show makes this big deal of very slowly and overdramatically revealing to the audience that Thomas's tapes are actually what Patricia had been recording on her TV before the fire at the Visser. It's certainly something, given that any viewer paying attention should have put two and two together a while ago. If Bellows is looking at soap operas, then of course he's looking into Patricia's tapes. What the fuck else would he be doing? Why does the narrative feel the need to hold the audience's hand here? Why do the writers think that their viewers are morons who need this carefully spelled out? Why is the show catering to the lowest common denominator? It's not like rule number one of writing, but it's still pretty high on the list. Don't insult your audience. Just don't. But anyway, Thomas went poking around in the tunnels back when he was still alive, and he found a bunch of blood down there with some Wellspring records that hint the company was looking for someone. I'm willing to bet that Thomas was a failed candidate for that someone, just as Annabelle seems to be a failed candidate for maybe a replacement Eleanor. Cassandra specifically said something about Annabelle not being strong enough to handle it, and I would bet that Thomas was in the same boat. Thomas wasn't able to handle what he was shown just as Annabelle wasn't, and Dan, just like Melody, will be more equipped to survive. Probably. Before Thomas's tapes end, though, he insists to the camera that he is starting to see a face, someone or something, watching him and or trying to tell him something in the soap operas, just like Patricia claimed back in the 90s which means that Dan has had enough. He heads into the tunnels and checks out the VHS tapes. It's this long montage of him showing the audience that the tapes belong to Patricia, and it is such a waste of the viewer's time. Like, the clock of mortality is ticking away for us all here, show. Get this on the road, why don't you? So Dan's attempt to contact Mark to let him know about what he's found is interrupted by Bobby, who remains mysterious but offers good advice. Just finish the fucking job, take the money, and run. Speaking of Mark, though, we are now back to him. He meets up with Jill, the woman implied to be Dan's ex. She's got the collection of tapes and whatnot left over from the recent death of Evie Crest, and Mark wants to buy them. They view a little bit of the snuff film, not the part that actually makes it a snuff film, and then Jill agrees to sell it all to him. It was surprisingly easy, making one wonder if Jill might also be involved somehow. 
Either way, she comes bearing information. We are introduced to Iris Voss, a Madame Blavatsky type, hopefully not in that sense, though, who was the ringleader of the original cult behind the snuff film. So again, I've got to wonder what kind of gender stuff is going on here. You rarely see a murderous occult group run by a woman. Usually these things are handed over to LaVey or Crowley ripoffs, and Iris Voss being the ringleader again brings up the uncertain dynamic between Samuel and Cassandra. Again, who is really in charge here? Given Cassandra's behavior back in that worship scene, I think she's either going to turn out to be the surprise real leader of the cult, or she's going to wind up being a mole or betrayer and helping Melody. Whatever her deal is, though, she's clearly very important. But back to Melody's tape. It's a Samuel-Melody confrontation down in the moldy basement, and he decides to drop the pretense. The truth starts to come out after some really terrible lying, and I've gotta say that the truth isn't really any more compelling than the fiction. Like, I am so unclear on the underlying motivation here. Samuel leads Melody down into the cult's secret sanctum beneath the viscer and starts talking about how this whole thing is religious devotion and how they're going to literally create a new world and, like, why? Like, how is this cult attracting devotees in the first place? What's this demon god's deal? What's he all about? Seriously, what does he offer to attract these followers? Some of them are clearly just getting high, but what's in this for Samuel? Is he just delusional and fanatical? Has he been promised some kind of power in the new world? Is he trying to avoid something in this life? Like, what the hell is his story? Not to mention the story of everyone else who got pulled into this wacky worship. Like, why are we spending so much time on Melody when she is clearly so much less interesting than everyone else in her tale? But anyway, Samuel reveals that he was the one who lured her here with a fake letter from her mom, and I would say that was about as far from shocking as a twist could be. It is no surprise to me that the letter turned out to be a lure. I already predicted as much, and so of course it was either Samuel or Cassandra who did it. After seeing the snuff film, though, Melody has more pressing concerns. Namely, is the cult planning to slit her throat like that poor woman in the video? But Samuel is quick to reassure her otherwise. They couldn't hurt her even if they wanted to, according to him. Besides, they already have a volunteer sacrifice, with the implication being, of course, that this sacrifice will be Jess. For the second time that day, Melody tries to pack her shit and flee the viscer. She is no more successful this time than last, though, it suddenly occurs to her that she's heard that whole new world inside me bit of nonsense before. Jess said that shit, and because the writers think we in the audience are all morons, we have to sit down with Dan and Melody both as they rewatch the Jess interview. So then, at Jess's apartment, Tamara is waiting for Melody. Jess is gone, and Melody flees. Which brings us to that tape we saw early on in the show, the one that made Dan realize his father was involved. Melody tries to find Jess and or escape the viscer, but she gets cornered by the maintenance man and Samuel, and then runs into an ambush by Rockland employees. Dan's dad tries to tell her that everything is going to be fine, but I rarely find such empty promises particularly comforting while I'm being kidnapped, if I'm being perfectly honest. But before we get to see any further than we've seen before, we have to deal with Dan and his monster problem. That thing that keeps showing up in the static? Well, it has decided that it wants to come out for a playdate, I guess. And all I can say is that, like, the CGI isn't completely atrocious? That's the nicest I can be here. I'm sorry. So Dan smashes the various screens to stop it coming after him, or to stop his hallucinations, who knows? And then he goes to smash some tapes, and then he smashes the walls, revealing that the mold has penetrated the entire building. In fact, the mold is not just in the machines and behind the walls, it's on the floor, spreading out from a hole with a ladder down into a familiar setting. Somehow, the ritual spot from the snuff film, the one from the old mansion, the very room that Melody was just in, it's beneath the compound. 
How is that possible? I have no idea. It's possible that it's something to do with the extra-dimensional nonsense going on beneath the surface here, or maybe it's as simple as this place being a replica or a recreation of that place. Either way, Dan hardly knows what to do, and I can't blame him for that. This shit is weird enough already, weird enough that he should be running for the hills if he had any sense at all, but it's made all the weirder by the wall of screens playing clips from Melody's videos on repeat. But if you're after answers, you will not be getting them in this episode, because we have finally reached the end. Dan turns around, apparently sensing someone behind him, and is knocked out cold by an unseen assailant. And I cannot pretend that I particularly care. Because we are closing in on the end of the show at this point, the very end of the first season of it at least, and I'm going to be watching the final two episodes of season one of Archive 81 almost pretty much as soon as I finish recording this episode of the podcast, and I very much think that at this point it is safe to say that I don't really like this show. I don't think the show is very good. Obviously there are two more episodes that could turn this whole thing around, but I think it's safe to say at this point that I am tentatively judging it. This does not seem like it's going to overall be good. There are things here and there that I think are well done or could be well done with proper nuanced writing and nuanced characterization, but everything that surrounds this show's potential is just slapdash and messy. And what I think I'm seeing in terms of good writing, I don't trust that it's even actually good writing. I don't trust that the writers here didn't just like fall ass backwards into accidentally doing something well, because so much of everything else is just, it's trash. I don't trust that they're doing things here with like, intention. I don't trust that they're taking time and taking care with their story. I don't trust that they're really practiced and talented at what they're doing. And if they are, if they have other works in their repertoire, if they have other works in their portfolio that shows that they are good at their jobs, then what the hell happened here? This is pretty bad. It's almost shockingly bad, especially how many, t given how many times it's been up in those, you know, top 10 of Netflix lists. So like I said, I'm really close to the end of this. After today, like, you know, two hours from now, I will have seen all of this show's first season, and I will be on the other side of the first season of this story. And I will be, I assume, in a place of frustration. Right now, right now, I am very frustrated with the story. I am frustrated because, like I said, I see very interesting things here and there, and they're not being done in a very interesting way. They're not being handled well. They're being done in very cliche, very retreading of things we've seen before. There's a little bit of The Exorcist here. There's a little bit of The Black Tapes. There's a lot of Rosemary's Baby. But all in all, it's kind of just a mess when you're watching it and you're noticing the connections between this and The Exorcist, between this and Rosemary's Baby, between this and The Black Tapes, this and any number of other things that you can see referenced in its writing. You just come away from the, the whole show with this feeling of like, this show is reminding me of this good thing. I should turn it off and go watch the good thing. I could be listening to that good show, that good podcast instead. I could be even listening to the actual podcast that this show is based on. It's just, I, there's potential here, but all in all, this feels like a large waste of my time right now. And because I don't make the best decisions for myself, I am toying with the idea of wasting a little bit more of my time on it. Because this is an eight episode series, I am going to be ending my work week with a spare day, but that means, yeah, that means I have a three-hour chunk in which I can do what I please. My schedule will be free. And so I'm toying with the idea of, well, once I've seen where this story ends up at the end of the first season, I might decide to try to go through the entirety of this plot to see if I can tear it down and rebuild it into something I personally, at least, would find more satisfying. Because, again, 
I really, truly think I see a lot of good stuff that could be done with the building blocks of this story. It would be an entirely self-indulgent nonsense act. It would be a waste of my time. But again, I just, I don't know, there, so many parts of this story really charmed me. But they're really consistently buried beneath all of the parts of the story that I'm really kind of hating. And like I... Like I said, I haven't seen the final two episodes yet. I don't know if I'm going to still be interested in that idea after I see the finale. Um, the finale could be phenomenal. I don't know. I could completely change my mind on the story. Or alternately, the finale could be so bad that I no longer want to spend a single moment of my brain power on the rest of the story. But where I'm at right now is that I am genuinely kind of considering doing like a loose restructuring of this story and maybe reading that on the podcast next week. Not like a long in-depth fanfic or something, but just like a proposal for how, it, you know, this could have gone if it had been done a little bit better or made into like a tighter narrative, a more interesting story, at least as far as I'm concerned. Not saying anything I could come up with would be more interesting to other people, but it would definitely be more satisfying to me. Like I said, if I do that, it will end up appearing on the podcast. If I don't end up doing that, I'm not going to mention it again. But this is the kind of thing that I could end up doing on the show in the future for this show and others, too, that I cover. Um, so keep your eyes and your ears open for that kind of thing in the future. If I don't do it for this show in particular, I may do it for another show in the future. We're going to see how that goes. Um, but I, I do really have enough on my plate already. I don't know why I would throw even more nonsense onto it, but... Like I said, I make really phenomenal decisions on how to use my time. In any case, I am, again, not enjoying the show. Like I said, it has been a slog. It's been a, it's been a huge slog. Um, the opening, the beginning, wasn't like the most promising thing I've ever seen, but there was more hope there for me, that's for sure. And like I said, while I'm seeing the possibility for interesting things to be done here, interesting things are not, in fact, being done here. And I don't know, everything happening on the sidelines of this story is so much more interesting than what's happening in the forefront. And I think I'm really, truly ready to be done with this. I, I will be able to say for sure after I see these next two episodes, but I'm thinking that Archive 81 is probably going to end up on my list of things that if they do come back for future seasons, I'm not going to be covering them unless someone maybe commissions me to do that. Um, if I ever have to watch another bit of this, I'm going to try to be getting paid for it, that's for sure. Or at least that's what I'm feeling right now. Um, could change my mind in the future. That is theoretically possible, but I don't expect it to be the case. Um, so, like I, like always, I am going to be back in about one week's time with my thoughts and feelings on the penultimate episode and the final episode of Archive 81, Season 1. Um, I don't know for sure what I'm going to think and feel at this point, but I do have some some strong suspicions. Um, if you enjoyed Archive 81, if you really thought it was very good, I apologize. You are probably not enjoying this coverage. You don't have to continue to listening to it. I, I free you. I do. I release you. You have no obligation. Find something else. Find a better use of your time than me. If you are, however, enjoying my show, thank you very much for listening. You may be interested in heading to my Patreon, where for $1 per month, you will occasionally be offered the ability to help guide my journey through fiction. I will occasionally be putting up polls, determining what it is that I watch and cover on the podcast. Or you may be interested in the $5 tier, which gets you access to all of my reaction videos on what I cover for the podcast, plus some other things. Um, if you don't want to do any of that, you may be interested in going to your podcatcher of choice and leaving a rating or a review of this show. That helps. Be perfectly honest. Be fair. I don't care. Um, or you could go to your social media, talk about the show, go to a friend, tell them about the show if you think they would like it. Anything like that helps. It helps a ton. I'm very grateful if you do any of that, but 
of course, I am mostly just grateful that anyone is listening at all. I am thrilled by the entire notion that anyone could be listening to this deeply stupid podcast of mine. I am so tickled that anyone might actually do that. So thank you for that. As always, thank you very much for listening. I hope you are enjoying this and I hope you enjoy me next time for the finale episode of my Archive 81 coverage and I hope you join me for everything else that I do in the future. As always, thank you for listening. Just because Melody fucking Pendrus thinks it's mean to place other people's safety a bug, a bug, a bug, help a bug.